Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 1 of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Nelson. Citadel of Fear. Chapter 1 Hidden in the Hills. Don't leave me. All in. The words were barely distinguishable, but the tall figure in the lead, striding heavily through the soft, impeding sand, heard the mutter of them and paused without turning. He stood with drooped head and shoulders as if the oppression of the cruel, naked sun were an actual weight that pressed him earthward. His companion, ploughing forward with an ultimate effort, sagged from the hips and fell face downward in the sand. Apathetically the tall man looked at the twitching heap beside him. Then he raised his head and stared through a reddening film at the vast, encircling torture-pen in which they both were trapped. The sun, he thought, had grown monstrous and swaddled all the sky. No blue was anywhere, brass above, soft, white-hot iron beneath, and all tinged to redness by the film of blood over sand-tormented eyes. Beyond a radius of thirty yards his vision blurred and ceased, but into that radius something flapped down and came tilting awkwardly across the sand, long wings half-spread, yellow head lowered, bold with an avid and loathsome curiosity. "'You!' whispered the man hoarsely, and shook one great red fist at the thing. "'You'll not get your dinner off me nor him, while my one foot can follow the other.' And with that he knelt down by the prostrate one, drew the limp arms about his own neck, bowed powerful shoulders to support the body, and heaved himself up again. Swaying, he stood for a moment with feet spread, then began a new and staggering progress. The king vulture flapped lazily from his path and upward to renew its circling patience. After years in hell, where he was doomed forever to bear an intolerable burden across seas of smoking fire, the tall man regained a glimmering of reason. It came with the discovery that he was lying flat on his stomach, arms and breast immersed in liquid coolness and that he was gulping water as fast and as greedily as swollen tongue and lips would permit. With a self-control that saved two lives, he forced himself to cease drinking, but laved in the water, played in it with his hands, could scarcely believe it, and at the same time thanked God for its reality. 
So sanity came closely back, and with clearing vision he saw the stream that meant salvation to sun-drained tissues. It was a deep, narrow, rapid flood, rushing darkly by and tugging at his arms with the force of its turbulent current. Flowing out from a rocky gorge, it lost itself again round a curving height of rocks. What of the white-hot torture-pit? He was in shadow now, blessed, cool, revivifying, but alone. Dragging himself by sheer willpower from the water, the tall man wiped at his eyes and stared about. There close by lay a motionless heap of brown, coated with sand in dusty patches, white sand in the tumble of black hair at one end of it. Very cautiously the tall man got to his feet and took an uncertain step toward the huddled figure. Then he shook one dripping red fist toward a wide, shimmering expanse that lay beyond the shadow of the rocks. "'You all missed us,' he muttered with a chuckle, almost childishly triumphant. "'And you'll never get us. Not while. My one foot can follow the other.' Then he sat himself to revive the companion he had carried through torment on his shoulders, bathing the face, administering salvation by cautious driblets on the blackened, leather-dry lips and tongue. He himself had drunk more and faster. His already painful stomach and chest told him that. But this other man, having a friend to minister, need take no such chance with his life. From his face the sand was washed in little white rivulets his throat muscles began to move in convulsive twitches of swallowing. As he worked, the tall man cast an occasional glance at the gorge from which flowed the stream. Below was the desert. Above, craggy heaps and barren stretches of stone towered skyward. Blind and senseless, led by some inner guidance, say instinct rather than sense, he had dragged himself and his fellow prospector from the desert's hot, dry clutch. Would the hills prove kinder? Water was here, but what of food? He glanced again up the gorge and saw that beside the swift water there was room for a man to walk, and downstream drifted a green, leafy branch, hurrying and twisting with the current. As liquid iron cools withdrawn from the fire, so the desert cooled with the setting of the sun its furnace. Intolerable whiteness became purple mystery overhung by a vault of soft and tender blue, that deepened, darkened, became set with a million flashing jewels. And under the stars cool night-winds roved, like stealthy, invisible prowlers. Up among the rocks they came, stirring the hair of two escaped prisoners of the sun as if with curious fingers. As their chill, stealthy breath struck through to his heated body, the smaller man shivered in his sleep. His companion rolled over and took the unblanketed form in his arms to share with it his own warmth and unconquerable vitality. Dawn came, a hint of dun light. The stars faded and fled in a moment, and saffron glory smote the desert into transitory gold. One man had slept little and the other much, but it was the first who rose strongly from the bare rock and roused the second to action. We're her own men again he asserted with confident optimism. "'Tis time we were proving it, and though cold water's a poor breakfast, that's but encouragement to find a better. Come now, stand up on your own two feet, Mr. Kennedy. Thee or that way we may be seeking it.' Unwillingly the other raised himself. 
His face, save for the dark stubble of a three days' divorce from the razor, was clean-shaven, and his black hair, dark alert eyes, and the tan inflicted by a Mexican sun gave him almost the look of an Indian. His companion, on the other hand, was of that blond, freckle type which burns but hardly tans at all, and his young, homely face flamed red beneath a thatch of hair nearly as ruddy. Well over six feet in height, lean, tough, with great, loose-moving shoulders and slim waist, Cullen O'Hara looked what he was, a stalwart young Irishman whose full power was yet to come with years, but who even at twenty excelled most men in strength and stamina. Under his worn flannel shirt the muscles played, not in lumpy hillocks, but in those long, easy curves that promise endless endurance. "'Come along,' he repeated. "'They'll be waiting breakfast for us up the arroyo.' "'Who will? Oh, just some more of your nonsense, eh? Can't we even starve to death without your joking over it?' "'And for why should we starve, little man? Take the edge off your temper with this, then.' He tossed over something which Kennedy caught with eager hands, and bit through its grey-green skin almost before looking at it. "'A uh, lechera pere?' Eh? he gulped and bit again. "'Where did you get it?' The other pointed at the rushing stream. "'It came floating down last night, and I saved it, thinking you might need a bit of encouragement the morn.' "'Only one?' demanded Kennedy with a quick, greedily suspicious glance. "'Only one.' Finishing the milky pulp hurriedly, the dark man washed its sticky juice from his face and hands and turned with a grin. "'You're a fool to have given it all away, then. Too big a fool for me to believe in. How many did you eat, really?' The Irishman's red brows drew together. He turned away. "'I gave you it all that I might be saved the carrying of you,' he flung back. "'I'd enough of that yesterday.' He was striding upstream now, and Kennedy followed scowling at his swinging back. "'I say, Boots,' he called in a moment, "'you know I meant nothing. You saved my life, I admit, and—thanks for the pair.' Boots, the nickname being probably derived from the enormous pair of cowhides in which the young Irishman had essayed desert travel, flung back a brief, "'It's all right,' and tramped steadily on. He was not the man to quarrel over so trifling a matter. As for their present goal, the best that even optimistic Boots hoped for was some uncultivated valley where they might precariously sustain life on wild fruit and such game as they could take without weapons. Barren, unpopulated, forsaken even of the Indians, this region had an evil reputation. Collados del Demonio, Hills of the Fiend, the Mexicans called it. So far as Coaxictin, at the desert's rim, the prospectors had come without trouble. Those were the days when Porfirio Diaz still kept his iron grip on the throat of Mexico, and by consequence even a Puerco Gringo might travel through it in safety. But Coaxictin offered them no encouragement to further progress. Kennedy had tried in vain to persuade some native of that Indian settlement to accompany them as a guide. Gold? Ah, yes, there was gold in the hills. Golden nuggets as big as your closed fist, so. But also devils. Was it not known that in ancient days all Anahuac was inhabited by giants? 
even now, in turning new fields, a man was likely to uncover their enormous bones. Their terrible white ghosts overran the hills. They hunted the hills with the ghosts of white cougars for companions. They would twist off the head of a man and swallow it and his soul like melon seeds. No, no, blanket was not woven nor knife forged that would pay a man for being eaten, soul and all, by devils. In the huge half-rotted brown thing like a strange log which they finally dragged forth to support their story of giants, Kennedy recognized the thigh-bone of a mastodon. The prospectors yielded hope of conquering a superstition rooted in the prehistoric past and set out alone. It was true that they had reached their goal, the hills, but with their own bare hands for sole remaining equipment and for provision the hope of what the country itself might offer. Shadowed from above by beetling cliffs, the curving path of the torrent led them on. The gorge widened. They reached a sharp bend of the walls and rounded it. "'Saints above!' came Boots' sharp ejaculation. "'Mr. Kennedy, did you ever see the like of that?' Mr. Kennedy made no reply. Had the gorge opened out upon a pit of flaming brimstone, neither man could have halted more abruptly nor stared with a greater amazement. Their emotion, however, was the opposite of dismay. To eyes sand-tortured and sun-weary, the vista before them seemed hardly less blessed than paradise. On either hand, steep, thickly wooded bluffs ran parallel to the reach of a gorgeously flowering and fruitful ravine. Through its midst meandered the stream, broadly shallow between pleasant banks, till it reached the rocks and swirled to a somber turmoil of revolt. But better than flower or fruit or sparkling river, the scene held a certain homelier significance. The groves of fruit trees were set in orderly ranks. Pinanonias raised their sharp spikes in rows of military alignment. Along the stream, a brown path trended toward that which confirmed the meaning of all the rest, a gleam of white walls near the upper end of the ravine. A plantation, cried Kennedy at last a plantation in the Coyotos del Demonio, and by report there isn't a square foot of cultivated land within a hundred and fifty miles of this spot." Boots grinned cheerfully. "'Report's a liar. Maybe it's the house and the old hill-devil himself we've blundered upon. So be, he owes us breakfast for hunting him out.' With the direct purpose of hungry men they headed straight for those patches of shining white which betokened, as they supposed, the doby house of a rancher. In the orange groves, blossom and full golden sphere flourished side by side. Sapodillas, milk pears, and cerulas, hung with a million reddening globes, offered proof of generous soil and a kindly climate. Flocks of butterflies, crimson, blue, and metallic green, shared the air with hummingbirds, whose plumage put the sailwings to shame for brightness. Musical-voiced blue sparrows, wild canaries, and gaudy little parakeets filled the trees with rainbow-hued vivacity. "'It's Aden without the—' began Boots, when came a sharp warning from the long grass that bordered the path. Boots bowed in mock salutation toward the sound. "'Asking your pardon, Mr. Rattler. Aden, serpent, and all is what I'd meant to be saying.' "'Don't crack any of your fool jokes when we reach the house.' growled Kennedy. Some of these Mexicans are as touchy as the devil. Ah, now, 
you'd soon soothe them down with a scowl or so," laughed Boots. But, well, don't you admire the look of that, Mr. Kennedy? It's no ranch-house they have, but a full-fledged hacienda no less." It was true. Instead of the common dobe-plastered casa of a small rancher, the thinning trees revealed an establishment far more imposing. Wide-spread, flat-roofed, its walls even yet showing only in patches through rioting rose-vines, here was such a residence as might be owned by any wealthy gentleman of Mexico. To find it in these hills, however, was as surprising as to discover a Fifth Avenue mansion at the heart of a Bornean jungle. From one chimney, presumably over the kitchen, a thin curl of smoke was rising. This was the only visible sign of life within. And now it struck them that in the whole length of the ravine they had not seen so much as one peon at work among the plantations. The hacienda seemed very silent. Behind the walls of its courtyard no dog barked nor cock crowed. Save for the musical tumult of birds, they might have wandered into a valley of magical stillness. "'Smoke spells fire, and fire spells food,' asserted Boots. "'The cook's awake, and tis shame if the rest be sleeping with the sun up these two hours. Will we walk in, or knock, Mr. Kennedy?' You have the better knowledge of what's considered fitting in these parts." "'Knocks,' came the curt advice of his companion. He was eyeing the hacienda suspiciously, but as suspicion was Kennedy's normal attitude toward the world, Boots paid that no attention. He boldly advanced toward the wooden outer gates that stood open, yielding a pleasant glimpse through two archways to the inner patio, with its palms, gay oleanders, and tinkling fountain his fist smote loudly on a leaf of the open gates. Almost immediately the summons brought response. On pattering bare feet a child came flying out from among the palms, only to pull up abruptly when she perceived that the visitors were strangers. She was a pretty enough youngster, between three and four years old, with curling black hair, bright solemn dark eyes, and a skin surprisingly pink and white for a Mexican child. Her dress was a single slip of brown agave fiber, clean, however, and painstakingly embroidered. "'Buenos dias, Chiquita,' greeted Boots, whose Spanish, though atrociously accented, generally served the purpose. "'Esta usted solo en la casa?' "'Are you alone in the house?' The curly black head shook in solemn negation. Then the round face dimpled into laughter and running straight to her giant questioner she put up chubby arms in an unmistakable plea. With an answering laugh the Irishman caught the baby up and set her on the towering height of his shoulder. Kennedy frowned weary irritation. "'Are we to stand here all day?' he queried. Leaning forward the child peered down at him around the ruddy head of her swiftly chosen friend. "'Do way,' she commanded calmly. Red man nice. Come in. Black man do way. Way, way off." She emphasized the order in her unexpected baby English by a generous wave of her hand toward infinite outside spaces. Boot's shout of mirth at this summary choice and dismissal produced two results. Kennedy's annoyance was increased, and a man came out from some door which the first archway concealed, and strode quickly toward them. Dressed in immaculate white, well-groomed and confident of bearing, here seemed the probable master of the hacienda. "'What is this? Put that child down, sir. Who are you, and how did you come here?' 
The Irishman shrugged a trifle resentfully. "'The little maid's in no danger,' he protested. "'We're seeking the common kindness of food and shelter, for the which we'll gladly pay and get on our journey again.' Without replying, the man advanced, took the girl from her lofty perch and set her down. "'Run in the house, little daughter,' he commanded briefly. But with a wail of rebellion she flung both short arms around the Irishman's dusty boot. Foreseeing trouble for the young lady, he stooped and gently disengaged her. "'I've a little sister at home, Colleen,' he said. "'That's the spit and image of yourself, save she's the eyes like blue cornflowers. Don't you be crying now. We'll see each other again.' As she still clung, her father stooped, lifted her, and faced her about in the desired direction. "'Go in,' he commanded, with a gentle sternness that this time won obedience. Boots looked at her regretfully, for he liked children. He was indeed to see her again, as he had promised, but not to know her, not though that recognition would have saved him terrible and bitter pain. But now she was to him only a small girl-child, who went at her father's insistence, and going, turned to wave a chubby and reluctant farewell. Upon her disappearance the father's manner relaxed. "'You took me by surprise,' he explained. "'We are seldom favoured with guests here, but I meant no inhospitality. You come from—' "'The desert.' Boots' brevity was indignant. Did the fellow think him a child-eating ogre that he snatched away his daughter so anxiously? But Kennedy was more voluble. He plunged into an instant and piteous account of their recent sufferings, or, to speak more correctly, of his own, and before the tale was half finished their unwilling host's last trace of hostility seemed to have completely vanished. "'Come in, come in,' he ejaculated. "'You shan't tell me that sort of story standing out here. Come in and I'll find you something or other worth eating, though I can't promise what it will be. My people—he paused and seemed to hesitate rather strangely—my servants are off for the day,' he at last concluded. I'll do my best, and ask you to put up with any lacks due to their absence." Both men offered willing, though surprised, assent. "'Off for the day,' thought Boots. "'And where off to, I wonder? Does he give picnics to his peons? He is a different master, then, to any I've met in this slave-driver's country.' Having seated them in a great, cool, high-ceilinged, and gallery dining-room, their host disappeared, to return presently bearing a piled trayful of plunder from his own deserted kitchen. The food, which included chicken, the inevitable tortilla, sweet potatoes crystallized in sugar, bananas and other fruits, was as typically Mexican as the hacienda. Yet all signs failed if their host were of Spanish blood. No Spanish-American speaks English as if it were quite native to his tongue, and moreover, though his eyes were dark and his hair, save where it was liberally shot with grey, almost black, there was something about his keen, clean-cut face which spoke of some more northern race. "'You are from the U.S.A.?' questioned Kennedy. The question was too blunt for courtesy, but the man nodded. "'Yes, I am an American, a Californian, though my parents were born on the Christiania Ford.' "'Ah, a Norseman, is it?' Boots' eyes lighted appreciatively. He had known a Norwegian or two, and thought them a fine, upstanding, hard-hitting men of their hands. "'I'm very glad to know you, Mr.' "'My name is Sven Bjornsson,' 
The tone was so challengingly abrupt that his guests involuntarily stared. If he had expected, however, to amuse another sort of surprise, he was disappointed. He saw it instantly and laughed as if to cover some odd embarrassment. "'Pardon my not presenting myself earlier. One forgets civilized forms in this out-of-the-way place. And now I fancy you'd welcome a chance to wash and change to fresh garments. Will you follow me, gentlemen?' The cool, airy chamber to which he escorted them opened off one of the two galleries surrounding the dining-room. Its three windows overlooked the patio, and through them one could step out upon another long, open gallery. There were two beds, draped with elaborate lacework, furniture of woven grass and wicker, and a bathroom with great, porous jars of cool water. In his first glance about, Kennedy's eye was caught by a thing that stood on a bracket over one of the beds. Without apology, he lifted the object down and examined it curiously. It was an image some ten inches high, done in brilliantly polished but unglazed porcelain. The face, though flat, bore a peculiarly genial and benignant expression. On the head was a sort of mitre, adorned with black spots. A tunic, on which embroidery was simulated in red, blue, and gilt enamel. A golden collar, gaiters spotted like the headdress, and dead-black sandals completed the costume. On the left arm a round shield was carried. The right hand grasped a stag, terminating at the top in the curved neck and head of a snake, springing out of a collar or circlet of feathers. It was a very beautiful piece of potter's art, but Kennedy had another reason for appreciation and interest. Quetzalcoatl, eh? he said from Cholula, or did you find it around these parts?" Bjornsson, who had not observed Kennedy's act, whirled like a flash. To the amazement of both men, his face had gone dead white, as if at receiving some intolerable shock. "'Quetzalcoatl!' he ejaculated in a quivering voice. "'Sir, what do you know of Quetzalcoatl?' Kennedy stared back in blank astonishment. "'Why, this?' he held up the image. I didn't suppose that one of these existed outside the museum at Mexico City. Don't you know its value?" Slowly the pallor vanished from Bjornsson's countenance, and his nervous hands unclenched. With another of those queer, embarrassed laughs he took the porcelain godling from Kennedy's hands. "'I had forgot the thing was in here,' he muttered. "'It belongs to my wife. She would be greatly annoyed if it were broken. Lucky piece, you understand. Superstition, of course, but no worse than throwing salt over your shoulder or not walking under a ladder, all that kind of nonsense. I'll put it in a room, if you don't mind. Got everything you want? Then I'll leave you. Better sleep out the day. Nothing like siesta. Dinner whenever you desire to have it." Still muttering detached phrases of hospitality, and with the image clutched firmly to his bosom, Bjornsson fairly escaped from the presence of his guests. "'What ails the poor man?' queried Boots. "'Did they think we'd steal his china mannequin, do you suppose?' Kennedy scowled and shrugged. "'I suppose,' he retorted, "'that this Bjornsson, if that's his real name, is a rather queer sort, and that while we are in this house his eccentricities will bear watching.' Weary though both were, they did not find it easy to fall asleep. There was something oppressive about this vast, silent hacienda. 
the mystery of its emptiness, the mystery of its very existence, combined with the odd manners of their host to fill their brains with riddles. They lay silent, uneasy, while outside the drowsy heat increased, and even the vociferous bird-life ceased its clamor. Out of the silence, however, rest was born at last, and it was late in the afternoon when they woke. "'By the way, Mr. Kennedy,' Boots said, "'if you'll forgive changing the subject to something more recent, what was the bit of bric-a-brac that Bjornsson snatched out of your hand? Quits? Quits? What was the name of it?' Quetzalcoatl. A piece of old Aztec work. Down in Yucatan one can pick up all sorts of stone and terracotta images among the ruins, but not like that. And this Quetz—what's-his-name? Who was he? One of the poor heathen idols, maybe? The Lord of the Air, the Feathered Serpent. Kennedy was generally willing to talk, when he could air some superior knowledge. By tradition he was a man, a priest, who was afterward deified for his beneficent acts and character. It is said that he ruled Mexico in its golden age, Anahuac they called it then, and when he left his people he promised to return at the head of a race of men as white as himself. He was a white god, you must understand. For that reason, when the Spaniards first landed, the natives believed the lost god's promise had been kept. Images of him are common enough, but not in porcelain of that quality. Bjornsson surprised me into giving away its real value like a fool but at that I could pay him a good price for the thing and still make a profit. It would bring almost any sum from a New York collector. Don't deceive yourself that he didn't know its value. You could see in his eye that he did. What do you think of Bjornsson, anyway? A fine, soft-spoken man, after the first minute. Did you notice how he boggled over his name? Sven Bjornsson. I dare swear he has another and one he has reason to conceal. But the other's retort was cold and to the point. We Irish do hate an informer. Are you ready yet to go down? Save for a look of black resentment, Kennedy made no reply. However, as their briefest discussions generally ended in a clash, Boots ignored the glance and passed out into the dining-room gallery. There was yet no sound of life in the house but on descending and finding their way out into the patio, they discovered Bjornsson there and he was not alone. Seated on a stone bench by the fountain was a woman. She was a tall, slender person of unusual beauty, and Boots thought her dark eyes and hair and peculiarly rose-like complexion reminiscent of the child who had first greeted them. She was dressed in a simple gown of some silky, leaf-green material and as she talked with Bjornsson her hand fondled the long, soft ears of a white hound, whose head rested on her knee. None of the three seemed at first aware of the guest's approach, but as they came nearer the woman's face lifted with a quick, startled attention. She sprang to her feet, and the dog, as if in imitation, reared up beside her. On its hind legs the brute stood nearly as tall as she, and an ominous rumble issued from its throat. Quiet cried Bjornsson sharply. He laid a hand on the beast's neck, pushing it downward. "'Gentlemen, I had hardly expected you to awaken so early.' He had grasped the hound by its silky white fur, for it wore no color, and under that insecure hold the animal surged disobediently forward. 
Its eyes flamed in a menace more savage than the bared fangs beneath, and as the dog seemed about to spring, Bjornsson flung his arms about its neck. In a flash it turned and tried to reach his face with snapping jaws. At that the woman, whose dark startled eyes had fixed on the strangers, seemed for the first time to become aware of her pet's misbehavior. She spoke to it in a murmur of soft, indistinguishable syllables, and the hound, which had so resented Bjornsson's interference, subsided instantly. A moment later it was flat on the ground at her feet. "'That's a fine dog,' approved Boots. "'And you've a finer command over him, madam. May I ask what breed he is?' Before the woman could reply, Bjornsson intervened. "'Just a hound of the hills,' he said quickly. "'Astrid, these gentlemen are those of whom I told you.' He presented them more formally, and, as Boots had expected, introduced the lady as his wife. The name Astrid had a Scandinavian sound, and her beauty might well be as Norse as her husband's ancestry, but they had little time to study her. After murmuring a few shy words of welcome, she excused herself and left the guest to Bjornsson's entertainment. As her green-clad form, with the white hound pressing close beside, receded into the inner shadows, the eyes of one man followed with a gleam of interest not aroused by her beauty. Her accent was the thing that troubled Archer Kennedy. That it was neither American, Norwegian, nor Spanish he was ready to take oath. Her appearance, too, had a vague hint of something different from any white woman he had ever seen. Yet, surely, no dark blood flowed in those pink-nailed hands, nor behind such rose-leaf cheeks. Dismissing the problem as immaterial, he returned to his host. End of chapter 1《Chapter Two of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear, Chapter Two The Moth Girl. Mr. Kennedy, we should go early to bed, for I think we'll be leaving the morn just so soon as we can borrow or buy means of travel. Rising, Boots cast away his brown-leaf cigarette with an impatient gesture. It was now nine in the evening, and for half an hour, following another picked-up meal eaten by the three men alone together, they had sat in silence. During that afternoon and evening, Bjornsson's embarrassment had taken refuge in a distinct coldness and reserve. Their questions he put aside or calmly left unanswered. But there was a worried line between his brows and he had developed a speculative, tight-lipped, and narrow-eyed way of watching his guests which made it very clear to him they were a problem with a capital P. Boots, who possessed more worldly knowledge than his years or careless manner would indicate, began to look speculative himself. Men with secrets to keep sometimes dispose of their problems in an unpleasantly summary manner, and certainly this ravine was secret. To believe that such a vivid jewel in the Baron Collados del Domonio had been kept from knowledge of the world by accident was folly. In the common course of events, the plantation would have been famed if only for its isolation. By what means and for what reason had Bjornsson prevented the spreading of its repute? From the first, they had sensed something wrong in the ravine, 
As time passed, and their host's peculiar manner became more and more emphatic, they began to believe that nothing was right. At Boot's half-irritated suggestion, Bjornson rose with suspicious alacrity, and Kennedy could do no less than follow suit, though he scowled in the darkness. For hours he had been waiting with the patience of a cat at a rat-hole for their host to let slip some careless word or phrase that would give him the key to a possibly profitable mystery. But he and young Boots were an ill-matched couple, and he was more annoyed than surprised that his watch should be put to an end by the latter's impatience. Having for the second time escorted them to their gallery beds, Bjornson handed the small triple candelabra he had brought to Boots and bade them a brief good night. Then he closed the heavy door behind them, and a second later there came certain unmistakable sounds from outside, followed by the unhurried footsteps of their departing host. With an oath Kennedy sprang for the door and wrenched vainly at the handle. As his ears had already informed him, it was locked, and not only that, but bolted. With the sudden frenzy of the trapped he kicked it, beat at it with his hands, then, with the same furious and futile energy, sprang across the room and attacked the solid wooden shutters, which, though he had not at first observed them, were closed when they entered. Still holding the candelabra, Boots stood near the middle of the room and watched his companion from under drawn, troubled brows. After a moment he set down the candles, took one stride forward, and grasping Kennedy by the shoulder, forced him away and into a wicker armchair. "'That's no way to behave.' he said reprovingly. Do you want to be frightening Mrs. Bjornson with your bangings and your yells like a he-banshee? Your throat's not cut yet, nor like to be." "'You young fool!' snarled the other. "'Shall we sit here quiet till they do it? Use that big body of yours to some purpose and help me break out before that cursed brigand comes back.' "'He'll not come back.' "'How do you know?' "'Tis not reasonable he should.' for why would he entertain us all day, herd us off alone with himself for watchman, keep his wife and bit child from our company lest they drop some word to betray them, and he plotting to murder us the night? All the hours we lay sleeping here, why, a bit of a knife-thrust would have just as well settled the business then. Better, for he's put us on guard now with this foolishness of locked doors and barred shutters. Murderers are not logical." Kennedy's first flurry of rage and fear was past, and a cold hatred for the man who imprisoned them was replacing it. "'You were fool enough to let him know we have money in our belts. You may wait if you choose to be pig-stuck and robbed, but my motto is, strike first and strike hard. Help me out of here, and I'll show you how to deal with this Bjornson sort.' "'Will you so?' Now hear me, Mr. Kennedy, and just remember that, though you're older nor me, and of perhaps more refined education, yet in the last showing and betwixt the two of us tis myself has the upper hand. You'll make no more disturbance, but you'll lay down or sit there in your chair, till such time as I see fit to act. Then you'll do as I say, and no otherwise. Do you understand all that?" Kennedy glowered blackly up at him, making no reply but Boots seemed content to take his obedience for granted. Turning away, he made a brief, careless inspection of door and shutters, then flung himself on the bed and lay quiet. Time passed. The candles burned down toward their sockets and the closed room grew swelteringly hot, but still neither man spoke to the other. Once or twice Kennedy rose and paced up and down the floor, or drank from a clay water-jar on the table. 
but the giant figure on the bed did not stir. The iron muscles of a hibernating bear were never less restless than the Irishman's when he had no occasion for their use. Yet at last he yawned, stretched, and sat up. "'We'll go now,' he coolly announced. "'Now blow out the candles.' He caught at the edge of the shutter as the hinges gave way. Pushing it a little further outward, he worked the bolts loose and eased it carefully down on the balcony outside. Sullenly the other followed, as the dominant Irishman stepped out on the balcony. Around them the inner walls of the hacienda rose dark and silent. Not a light showed anywhere. "'A poor jailer who trusts to doors and shutters alone,' thought Boots. "'It speaks well for his lack of practice that he set not even the dog to watch us, or we'll hope he's not set the dog.' With his boots slung about his neck, he cautiously climbed the railing. A moment later he was hanging by his fingers to the edge of the balcony floor, whence he dropped to land with scarcely any sound for all his weight on the hard clay that paved the patio. Again Kennedy followed, but not caring to risk a broken leg, he improvised a rope from the bedding, slid down it, and at that made more noise than the Irishman. No one, however, seemed to have been aroused and in three minutes they stood together safe outside the hacienda. Once clear of their room there had been nothing to hinder escape, for the wooden gates were merely shut too, and neither locked, barred, nor guarded. About them night lay so black, so oppressively breathless, that it gave almost the impression of a solid surrounding substance. They were in a region where rain, when it does fall, comes always between two suns. This night the world was roofed with thick cloud, like a lid shut down on the air, compressing it to the earth, making it heavy and unsatisfying to the lungs. "'We're in for a storm,' whispered Boots. "'I'd not reckoned on a night like this.' "'Reckoned on it for what?' Kennedy's tone was keenly unpleasant. "'To go after another sand-bath? If you are too cowardly to settle with Bjornson, let me go back alone.' I'll engage to find him, and by the time I'm through, he'll be glad enough to let us have supplies or anything else, if he's still alive. Time enough for all that tomorrow. Body of me, little man, have you no curiosity? I brought you out here to find the secret Bjornson so said on concealing, and all you can think of is retaliation and general bloodletting. This ravine isn't all the plantation. Tis a grand big hacienda. He's not crops enough in the ravine to support it and I've a notion that the upper end leads to the place or the thing he wants hidden. We'll find out what it is, and then go leave the poor man in peace, since he's so afeard of us. But see it I will, if only to make clear to him his mistake in locking us up so uncourteously." The other swore as he realized that Boots' curiosity was a thing cherished purely for its own sake. Boots steered him away from the hacienda, down to the stream, and along the narrow path that followed it. Kennedy was cursing again, for he had stumbled against the spike-tipped leaves of an agave with direful results, and then blundered into the water before he knew they had reached it, but Boots was cheerful. An occasional flare of distant lightning gave them twilight glimpses of the way, but otherwise they stumbled through breathless blackness, their only guide the feel of the trodden trail to their feet and the soft rush and gurgle of water beside it. The path grew steeper and more difficult as it left the stream to flow between rapidly heightening banks. 
came another flare of lightning, brighter and nearer. Boots halted so abruptly that Kennedy trod on his heels. A forest of giant ferns had leaped into existence on their right, and immediately before them, almost upon them, it appeared, was an enormous grayish figure, huge, flat-faced, that leered and grinned. Like the flick of a camera-shutter the light had come and gone. They were blind again, but the leader flung out his hands and touched the thing he had glimpsed. "'Stone!' Boots' voice was distinctly relieved. "'It's just a big image by the path.' Boots struck a match and held it high. Six feet above his head the gray face leered downward. Its grin seemed alive in the wavering light, alive and menacing, but Boots grinned back more good-naturedly. "'You poor heathen idol! You gave me a start, you did! Aztec, do you think, Mr. Kennedy?' "'Of course. Tlaloc, god of the hills and the rain, unless I'm mistaken. Yes, there is the cross of the Tlalocs carved at the foot. Where are you going now?' On, to be sure. We're coming to the pass I surmised was here that leads from the ravine into the hills beyond. It's the beyond I've a wish to investigate." The path was indeed very narrow, and the sound of water came up as a low, distant murmur. On that side was blackness and the sense of space. On the other an occasional brushing against face or hand told of the great ferns that stretched thin, frond fingers across the way. Then abruptly the path ended, or seemed to end. Their feet sank in moss or soft turf, and boots collided with an unexpected tree-trunk. Both men halted, and for a moment stood hesitant. The silence was uncanny. Not a whisper among the ferns, not the call of a night-bird. Even the usual insect hum was stifled and repressed to a key so low that it seemed only part of the stillness. The cloud lid was heavy above the earth. The dense air pressed on their eardrums as on first descent into a deep mine or well. Then, as they stared ahead through blackness, the attention of both men was suddenly attracted by a faint purplish glowing. It was quite near the ground and a short distance ahead of them. There was grass there, straight, slender stems of it, growing in delicate silhouette against that low, mysterious light. Advancing, Boots peered in puzzled question. As he neared it, the light flashed brighter with a more decided tinge of purple, and out of the grass a wonder soared up to float away on iridescent wings. It was a huge, moth-like insect, fully ten inches from wingtip to wingtip, and the glowing came from its luminous body, in color pale amethyst, coldly afire within. The broad wings, transparent as a globular walls of a bubble, refracted the creature's own radiance in a network of shimmering color. Boots gasped sheer delight, but Kennedy's comment was as usual eminently practical. "'Say, that beauty would bring a fortune from any museum. Do you suppose there are any more about?' The moth had settled in the long grass, where a dim glowing again marked its presence. Cautiously the two men moved in that direction they seemed to have come upon a sort of high meadow, though what might be its extent or general contour was impossible to say. As they went, another and yet another of the moths glowed, shimmered and rose, flushed up by their swishing progress through the grass. "'Like a dream of live soap-bubbles,' murmured Boots. 
wouldn't it be a shame now to catch one of those beauties and smother out the flaming life of him? For a young man of your size, you have the least practical sense. Hello! There was cause for the astonished ejaculation. He had glanced to one side, and there, standing between two slender trees with a hand on each, appeared a figure so exquisitely, startlingly appropriate that it was no wonder if for a moment both men questioned its reality. The form was that of a young girl of fifteen or sixteen years, if she reckoned her age by mortal standards, which Boots, for his part, seriously doubted. But elf or human maiden, she was very beautiful. Her skin was white as that of Astrid, the wife of Bjornsson, and she watched them with wonderful, dark eyes, not in fear, but with a startled curiosity that matched their own. All about the mist of her black hair the luminous moths were hovering. One, with slowly waving pinions, clung to her bare arm. Recovering instantly from his first amazement, Kennedy surmised that the insects were tethered by fine threads, as women of the tropics fastened fireflies in their hair. To Boots, however, she seemed no less than the carnified spirit of the creatures, who held them to her by bond of their mutual natures. Indeed, the garment in which she was draped had about its soft green folds a suggestion of the downy feathering of a moth's body, and the necklace about her slim throat seemed itself alive with soft fires. Its jewels, smooth and oval in shape, glimmered and glowed with the gentle motion of her breathing. Under his roughness, big, homely, red-headed boots concealed all the romance, all the capacity for worship of his Celtic forebears. He stood at gaze, almost afraid to breathe, lest the vision float up against the heavy background of night and go drifting away across the grass. But Kennedy had other thoughts in his head. To him the girl was a girl, the wonder-moths no more than convenient lanterns by which he saw something greatly to be desired. "'What opals!' he cried softly. "'Look at the man! Why, that Indian girl has a fortune round her neck! By Jupiter, here's where we square accounts with Bjornsson. There are opal mines in these hills, and for some reason he doesn't want his holdings known. You went right for once, boy. We've stumbled straight upon his precious secret. End of chapter 2《Chapter 3 of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear. Chapter 3 The Guardians of the Hills. Before Boots had grasped his companion's meaning or guessed his purpose, Kennedy had crossed the short space between them and the lovely apparition. Like a child that has never been frightened by brutality, she watched his approach in grave, wide-eyed curiosity. When, however, with one hand he grasped her shoulder, and with the other snatched at the necklace, she gave a little cry and attempted to draw back. The moths fluttered wildly, dazzling Kennedy with their flashing bodies, beating their iridescent, panic-stricken wings in his very face. He released the necklace to strike at them, brushed them aside. Then at last Boots ran forward, but before he could reach them a sharp report shattered the heavy stillness, and a bullet whined by so close to Kennedy's head that he jumped back and instinctively flung up his hands. 
"'Keep them there!' commanded a stern voice. Boots, who had halted at the shot, saw a dim, white figure striding toward them. Before it more moths flickered up, and by their ghostly light the newcomer was revealed as Bjornsson. His guest's informal departure had not, after all, gone undiscovered, and by the still-smoking rifle he held at ready and the brusque determination of his manner, the man intended an immediate resumption of his role as jailer. At sight of him the moth-girl gave a low, bird-like thrill of pleasure. She began talking in soft, low tones, using a language strange to two of her hearers, but full of liquid, musical sounds. Bjornsson answered her in the same tongue, though his accent was harsher and more forced. All the while he kept his rifle and his eyes trained on Kennedy. He finished speaking and the girl answered him briefly. Then Bjornsson deviated the threatening muzzle toward Boots, who had stood inactive since his coming. "'Stand over here, you. There, by your friend.' Boots obeyed. He understood exactly how the scene had appeared, one man ravishing the girl of her jewels, the other rushing to aid in the contemptible thievery. "'Mr. Bjornsson,' he began, "'I had no wish at all to—' "'Silence, you big red-headed bully!' I have eyes, and I saw what was going on here. Not that it surprises me. I took your measure when I first saw you in my gates. Now turn around, both of you. Do you see that stable lantern?" They did. It was one which Bjornsson had brought to find his way by, and he had left it set on the path beyond the field of grass. March very straight and carefully toward that lantern. Remember that if I kill you it will only save me trouble. Kennedy was shaking with futile rage, but Boots was less angry than disturbed. He found himself in the position of many another innocent careless man, condemned by the act of a rascally companion. But argument must wait. Just now there seemed nothing for either of them but obedience. A little way from the spot where the girl stood looking wonderingly after, Kennedy struck his foot on a hidden stone, stumbled and dropped to his knees. Seeing him fall, Bjornsson surmised the cause and waited for him to get up. He did, and in his hand was the stone he had tripped over. Whirling with nervous quickness of his anger and temperament, Kennedy flung the stone straight at the armed man behind them. More by good luck than aim it struck Bjornsson fairly between the eyes, so that he threw out his arms and reeled back and downward into the grass. With a cry more like a wildcat's voice than a man's, Kennedy rushed to the fallen figure, snatched up the rifle, and set its muzzle against Bjornsson's temple. His finger curled to the trigger. Another moment would have seen the scattering of Bjornsson's brains, had not a hand intervened and snatched the gun aside. "'Your interfering booby!' gritted Kennedy, as he wrestled for possession of the weapon. "'Let me have it! Let me have it, I say!' Stumbling over the victim's body, Boots lost his grip and with a triumphant snarl the other sprang back and flung the rifle to his shoulder. But even as he took aim the sky above them ripped open in one jagged crevice of blinding fire. The bolt shot across the clouds with a rattling, firecracker-like sound, splitting them asunder and releasing the pent-up deluge which all this while had hung above the earth. With the terrific explosion following that rattle and thrust of electricity the clouds emptied themselves. Startled and disconcerted, Kennedy had not fired, and Boots again leapt in to close with him. 
About them, trees, meadow, and hills flickered through sheets of rain like scenes in an old-time moving picture. Drenched, deafened by the incessant roar of rain and thunder, the two swayed stumbling about. In that hampering turmoil, Boots could not at first wrench the rifle from his antagonist, and though he might have easily killed the smaller man bare-handed, this was far from his desire. Then came an interruption more sudden and terrible than the storm, in whose tumult any warning noise there may have been was drowned. Out of the curtaining rain a horde of ghost-white forms hurtled upon them. They were beasts, great snarling white brutes, with slavering jaws and wolf-like fangs. Swept down by the rush, the human combatants were instantly buried under a piled, writhing heap of animal ferocity. In the stress of that utterly unexpected attack, Boos did not try to analyze its nature. In the back of his mind there was a dim feeling of wonder that the elfin stillness and beauty of a few minutes before should have culminated in such a series of cataclysms. For the rest, he knew that innumerable jaws and claws were tearing at his body, and that he was engaged in a mad, unequal fight to save his own life and Kennedy's. In some rare men the protective instinct is ineradicable. Because Archer Kennedy was his mate and weaker than he, in spite of all that had taken place, Boots was ready to give up life for him now as he had ever been. They had fallen so that his body shielded the other man. That was accident. But the effort which throughout that delirious battle kept their positions the same was no accident, and Boots paid dearly for acting as a shield. Had he been willing to fight his way to his feet again, he might have had a better chance. Flat down, the best he could do was to throttle any furry throat within reach, and keep his own neck free from the tearing, furious fangs. For a full two minutes the struggle continued. Boots had one white demon squeezed tight to his chest, the smothering weight of its flank protecting his face. His fingers were buried in the throat of a second, but he could not breathe wet fur, and the jaws of a third enemy were whirring at his right arm muscles. From shoulder to heel he felt them tearing and biting. Taken at a tremendous disadvantage, blind, smothered, and overmatched, Boots was in a very fair way to be torn to pieces, when suddenly another rush of feet came plunging through the rain. He did not hear them come. The first Boots knew of a change in conditions was that most of his snarling, growling tormentors had inexplicably ceased to either snarl, growl, or bite. Then he realized that the weight of them was also off him. The dirty cowards! They had given up the fight and run! That left only the pair in his actual grip. With a gasp of fierce joy, Boots tightened his hold, rolled off from Kennedy, who he greatly feared was by this time smothered in the mud, and got his knees under him. Incidentally, he clamped the head of one kicking, white monster under the knees. The one whose throat he had been squeezing had ceased to struggle, and he dropped it. With his face free at last of the blinding fur, Boots knelt up straight and looked for the rest of the pack. Though rain still fell in torrents, the lightning's illumination was becoming more spasmodic, and Boots was hardly sure that what he saw was real. Was he actually surrounded by a circle of strange, tall white men? At each recurrent flash he seemed to see them. Tall men, inhumanly tall. The rain sluiced off bare, gleaming shoulders. The rounded muscles shone wet and white. Their faces were stern, pallid, eyes fixed on him. Their hands waved. They were pointing at him. 
Through his Celtic brain flashed a wild suspicion that there stood the very beasts which had attacked him, werewolves, creatures neither man nor brute, but able to take the form of either. Under his knee the white thing he held there wriggled feebly. He had already strangled one. Here was another whose diabolical tricks he could stop. Dropping his hands, Boots shifted to find its throat and kneeled over quietly in the squelching, trampled grass. His last conscious emotion was self-scorn that he hadn't finished the man-wolf before. Like any common weakling, he died of his many wounds. "'Cheer up, or I'll think you hard to content. Tis the wonder of wonders, Mr. Kennedy, that they've let us live at all, and Bjornson's face fair ruined by the rock you hove at him.' Swathed in bandages, lying on a grass-stuffed pallet in the cubicle, brick-walled chamber, which for three days had been their prison, Boots looked kindly reproof at his fellow-captive. Bjornson himself had just paid them a brief call, and after his leaving, Kennedy's sullen countenance appeared more somber than usual. Now he stared at the Irishman with the shadow of some strange dread in his eyes. Talapalan, he muttered softly, Talapalan. Did he really say Talapalan, or did I dream it? He did that, the other confirmed. And why, may I ask, should his saying it fill you with despair? It's a fine hard word, I'll admit, but I'd never get it off my tongue like Bjornson did, or you either. But Talapalan! Kennedy repeated it as if the other had not spoken. He called this place Talapalan, and if that is true, but it can't be. Quetzalcoatl, Talapalan! No, no, one can't believe the impossible. And yet... His head drooped and his voice lowered to an indistinguishable mutter. Here was a phase of the older man's character entirely new to Boots, who eyed him with an amazement bordering on alarm. Their position was puzzling enough in all conscience, but Kennedy's manner and speech of the last few minutes hinted of some new riddle, some potentiality for harm in a mere word which Boots found vaguely disturbing. For three days they had been held close prisoners. The cell of their confinement, bare, built of yellow polished bricks, or rather tiles, was in the daytime lighted to a golden gloom by one small round window, offering a barren view across a brick-paved alley to a wall of highly polished white stone. As for what that alley might lead to, or what might lie beyond the wall, they knew practically nothing. This place was no part of the hacienda. The experience of Kennedy, who had been in his senses when brought here, told them that. They were, it was almost equally sure, somewhere beyond that pass which Boots had so eagerly desired to explore. Here ended their certainties, and began a mystery beside which that of the ravine faded to commonplace insignificance. After the calling off of the white hounds, in sober sense and remembering the beast they had seen in the patio, Boots dismissed his thought of werewolves as nonsense. Kennedy had staggered to his feet. Though half-strangled from being crushed in the mud, he was otherwise unhurt. No sooner was he up, however, than his arms were seized, a bandage was whipped over his eyes, and the grip of those so much stronger than he, that struggle was futile, he was dragged helplessly away. Like a child between two grown folk, he could hear the men who held him murmuring together over his head. "'Great lumbering louts!' he said viciously in describing the affair. 
They must have been even larger than you are, Boots, and goodness knows you're big enough. They went muttering along like a couple of silly fools, talked the same gibberish as that girl with the opals. When I tried to ask a question, one of the brutes struck me in the face." He had expected to be taken back to the ravine, and when, having walked a considerable distance, mostly downhill, they came to a place where his feet found hard pavement under them, he at first took it for the courtyard of the hacienda. As the march continued, however, turning corners, descending interminable flights of stairs, passing through covered ways, he knew them by the echoes and the fact that they were out of the rain, down yet more open stairs and still onward, he became hopelessly bewildered. At last, when he had begun to believe the downward march would last forever, his arms were released and he was given a push that sent him headlong. There was the closing of a door and silence. He tore the bandage from his eyes. Darkness was all around. Fearing to move, lest he fall into some chain, Kennedy remained crouched for another seemingly endless period, till dawn light replaced his imaginary chasms with the desolate, bare cell they still inhabited. He was then alone, but later Booch joined him, being carried in on a stretcher, one mass of bandages from head to foot. Had he come from the operating room of a city hospital, these dressings could have been no more skillfully adjusted, but the stretcher-bearers differed somewhat from the orderlies of such an establishment. Boots, being then and for several hours afterward unconscious, did not see them, but Kennedy described them after his own characteristic fashion. Savages, he said, plumed, beaded, half-clad, and barbarous. Let their skin be as white as they pleased, they couldn't fool him. Nothing but buck Indians of a particularly muscular and light-hued type, but Indians and no better. His tone inferred that an Indian was a kind of subhuman creature, whose pretensions to equality with himself should be firmly suppressed. But, though their physical proportions were not comparable to those of the giants who had called off the hounds, they were sufficiently stalwart, and Kennedy reserved his opinion of them for Boots' ears. One, who spoke fairly intelligible English, instructed him to care for the big red man, and informed him that if the patient failed to recover, the fault would be his, Kennedy's, since the sons of Talapot-Lazanan had done their part. He hinted, moreover, that the same offspring of an alphabetical progenitor would regard losing the patient as a personal affront, and probably take it out of the one responsible in a very painful manner. The stretcher-bearers then departed, and, with one exception, that cell had received no visible callers since. Food and drink were set inside the door at night by a jailer whom they never saw. Refuse of the previous twenty-four hours was removed in the same manner. Such conditions might not, one would think, be conducive to the rapid recovery of a man whose flesh had been ripped to shreds in a dozen places, but Boots seemed to be doing rather well. He awoke clear-headed, had developed no fever, and, though practically unable to move, he insisted that this was due more to a superfluity of bandages than the wounds they covered. Kennedy, however, perhaps recalling the stretcher-bearer's warning, would allow none of them to be displaced, and waited on his companion with a solicitude that astonished the recipient. Late in the afternoon of the third day they heard a trampling of feet on the bricks outside. The door opened, and from his pallet Boots caught one glimpse of waving plumes and barbarically splendid figures before it closed again. 
The man who had entered, however, was of far more commonplace appearance, save for his head, which in the matter of bandages matched Boot's body. It was not until he spoke that the latter recognized him as Sven Bjornsson. Pointedly ignoring Kennedy, he walked over and stood looking down at the swathed figure on the pallet. "'You seem to have had a little more than enough, my man,' he greeted Boots. Because there was truth in that statement, and because he felt at a great disadvantage, Boots managed a particularly happy smile. "'Ah, now,' protested he, "'twas a very amusing frolic while it lasted. Let me try it again with me two feet under me, and I'll engage to tame a few of those lapdogs for you. And how is your face the day, Mr. Bjornson? "'It's still a face.' The tone was rather grim. It would have been less than that if your friend had gotten his way with the rifle, so I shan't complain. "'Mr. Kennedy is a bit quick-tempered,' conceded Boots. "'But sure, you're never the sort to hold against a man the deed done in hot blood, more especially when the worst of it was never done at all, but just thought of—' The other laughed. "'That is an unusual plea. I'll consider it, and meantime let me thank you for having diverted the rifle-muzzle from my head.' I learned of your act from the daughter of Quetzalcoatl, whom your friend would have robbed. Another deed, I suppose, you place in the excusable just-thought-of class?" "'The daughter of—you can't mean the lass from Fairyland, with the fire-moths in her hair. Don't tell me she has years enough to be the child of an old dead heathen god like that!' Bjornson cast a nervous glance toward the closed door. "'Be careful! Never call Quetzalcoatl a dead god in Telapalan. The guardians of the hills are inclined in your favor. They admire strength and courage, and it is seldom indeed that a hound of Nakakiatls has been killed by a man barehanded. But to speak against Quetzalcoatl is a cardinal crime. Only your life could ever wipe out that insult. Would you believe it now? Boots' curiosity was immense, but he held back his questions, thinking Bjornson might be more communicative if merely led on to talk and there I might have hurt the feelings of them by a slip of the tongue, had you not warned me. Fine, large, handsome men they are, too, with a spirit of fair play that matches your own, Mr. Bjornson. It is good of you to say so. The other's voice was grave, but between the bandages his eyes were twinkling. And fair speech matches fair play in Killarney, eh? Carry, corrected Boots, but I met my words. I believe you did they are true enough, too, of the Telepolans. I can't say exactly what will be done about you and your friend, but Astrid has promised to speak for you, and I'll do what I can. As for your wounds, the Telepot-Lazanan Guild are wonderful healers, and I shall expect to see you on your feet in a week or so. You have reason to be thankful that the Guardians of the Hills called off their hounds when they did. A little more, and it would have been scarcely worth while trying to piece you together. "'Guardians of the hills,' repeated Boots thoughtfully. "'There was more truth than fancy, then, in the tales we heard of white giants, though the ghost cougars they hunt with are just dogs, and there's little of the phantom about any of them. "'Tis all a most interesting discovery. An adventure after my own heart, though so far the head and the tail of it are well hid, and the middle past all understanding.' The patient angler for information paused tentatively, but Bjornsson shook his head. "'For your own sake,' he said, 
it is better that you should not understand. I tell you frankly that there is a truth in these hills which no man has ever been allowed to carry beyond them. When you first came to my house it happened that none of the folk were in the lower valley. It was the time of the feast of Tlaloc, and they were all gathered in Tlapalan. As men of my own race I would have done much to save you, but you know how my efforts resulted. I do not, Boots retorted. Betwixt one mystery and the next my head is fair swimming. Better perish of curiosity than meet the fate I am still trying to avert from you. He looked pityingly down at the homely, good-humoured Irish face, with its danger-careless eyes and smiling mouth. I told you there was a secret in these hills. I tell you now that there is also a horror, a... a thing, a way they have... In a spasm of inexplicable emotion he broke off, and it was a moment before he could control his voice to continue. When I say that you are housed now in the seat of Nakak Ya'adl, it means nothing to you, but to me it means threat of a terror that I never think of when I can avoid it. When I was first here a prisoner, I, who had never given much thought to religion, used to spend whole nights in prayer, entreating God to make it untrue, or let me forget. And yet, when I could have escaped, I did not go though by staying I not only risked my soul, but betrayed a trust, I did not go. I knew by your faces at the house that you had never heard of Sven Bjornsson. Perhaps conscience exaggerated my fame in the world, and my dropping out of it hardly left a ripple. And yet I know that in some circles that could not have been so. But it was all so many years ago." He paused again. Very like," said Cullen. If twas so very many years ago, I must have been a small, ignorant spalpeen in Kerry when it happened. Tis no wonder I never heard of you." I was younger myself," the other answered reflectively. He might almost have been talking to himself instead of Cullen, arguing that old case that every man argues eternally before the inner tribunal. Young and impetuous. For all the standing I had achieved in the archaeological field, I know now how young I was. Very proud, too. Twenty-five, and set at the head of a scientific expedition. I wonder who has since done in Yucatan the things I set out to accomplish. And our party. Did any one of them survive to carry back a report? Wiped out by the Yaquis, and poor young Bjornsson, too. I can see the dear old greybeards who sent me out shaking their heads and sighing for another young promise lost, and sighing too for the work that had not been done. And I, who had originally been chosen, could have later taken them news whose confirmation would have made the university world famous. I fell in love and cast my lot with Tlapalan. A trust betrayed and youth served. It isn't the biography that was prophesied for Sven Bjornsson. If that's all you have on your conscience, consoled Boots, it's lighter than most men's. Sure, to carry tales from the world is an interesting occupation, but I cannot see how you were damned in neglecting it. By your manner, I thought you left a trail of murder and arson behind you. Bjornsson stirred impatiently and seemed ill at ease. I'm a fool, he said. 
What is science or a scientific reputation to an ignorant boy like you? Of course you can't understand. But it isn't only that. They are my friends, these folk. Sometimes I think they are the last remnant of a forgotten race, older than Toltec or Mayan or even the Olmecs, who have left nothing to archaeology but a memory. And sometimes I have other thoughts of them, thoughts that I can't put into words, for there are no words to express them. I know that they speak the Aztec tongue in all its ancient purity, and yet they are surely not of Aztec blood. However it be, they are good, true comrades, and my own wife is one of them. But I sometimes wonder if I have not... have not lost my soul in living here. I am saying too much. You can't understand, and you must not. You shall go back to your own people and your own god." Stooping unexpectedly, Bjornsson seized the surprised Irishman's hand and gripped it hard. Boy and his voice was a harsh whisper. Never bow your head to the gods of a strange race. Never. Not for our, nor love, nor wealth, nor friendship. Not for wonders, nor miracles. You speak of mysteries. There is a mystery I could tell you of. But your soul would be sick afterward. Sick. You might even desert your Christ, as I did, God help me. I am a good Catholic, said Boots, gravely and simply. Then stay so. You are in a city where mercy and kindness excel, and their roots are set in a monstrous cruelty. Where beauty springs out of horror, and they worship benignant gods with the powers of devils. Don't seek to know the heart of Talapalan. Go if they'll let you, and once away forget that you ever set foot in the Collados del Demonio." With no farewell but a final squeeze of the hand, Bjornsson was gone. A memory flashed across the mind of Kennedy. Talapalan! The white people of Talapalan! Grant that myth to be true, he thought, and anything was possible. Anything! For the rest of the afternoon the materialist sat with his head in his hands, silent and glum, till Boots, who could accept miracles, gave up trying to get at the cause of the other man's perturbation and fell peacefully asleep. End of chapter 3。Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.